Alright, well let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we begin just by worshiping You, honoring You, praising You. You are worthy. Your Son is our King, Your Spirit, our great Comforter, the One who has made us new in Christ. We thank You for the unsearchable riches of Christ that You have given to us as a gift when You set Your love upon us and granted us faith and repentance and united us to Your Son. We thank You that even now He has borne away our sins. He has clothed us with His own perfect righteousness like a, a robe of beauty and purity that we wear in Your presence, that we are now just in Your sight, not because of anything that we have done, but because of our Savior. And we thank You that He has sealed us with the Spirit, that He has filled us with the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, presence of our Savior with us even now. We thank You that the Spirit marks us off as the possession of Christ. And uh, we thank You for that day of redemption that's coming, when He will come to take what belongs to Him. We will be raised to be with Him forever. We thank You for the hope that we have of a day when the troubles of this life will be past, tears will be gone, and there'll be no more sorrow or pain or death. The former things will have passed away. We long for that day. We say with the church throughout the generations, uh, O Lord, come. And we know as well that in with gratitude that the reason why Christ has not returned is because you are patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We thank you that you are gathering in your elect through the preaching of the gospel, and that even now Christ is building his church. And so we wait with gladness and pray that you would raise up labors to go into the harvest. And uh, we think of our family and our friends, our neighbors, even this holiday season, as we may be gathering with family who are not believers, we pray for them. We pray for their souls that you would draw them to Jesus Christ. That you bring that good news to them once again. Open their hearts to respond to it as you did with Lydia in this city of Philippi so long ago. And we pray that you give us hearts of joy, hearts of gratitude, hearts that are bold to proclaim Christ. And even this morning as we open up your word and examine the book of Deuteronomy, as we continue to make our way through the Old Testament, we pray that you would illumine our minds, help us to understand your word better. And even as we take this overview look of the Old Testament, that you would give us a deeper understanding of it and how it anticipates and finds its consummation in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we just pray that so that we might know you better, that we might know your Son more and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so we pray that you would guide me along, help me to teach well and effectively, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you can see where we're at. We're going to finish the Pentateuch today. Pentateuch means what again? Five books. All right, first five books of the Bible. We're going to finish up in Deuteronomy today. Just a few introductory items about Deuteronomy here. Um, that's a photograph of Moses preaching this final message of his to, uh, his to the nation of Israel. This is 
part five of the Pentateuch, and you can see that Numbers, the book of Numbers, ends with the nation of Israel camped on the verge of the Jordan in a place called the Plains of Moab. And they reached that place, and then the entire book of Deuteronomy is a message that he delivered at that place on the plains of Moab. And in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 5 sort of indicates that that's the location where this message of Moses that we call Deuteronomy was delivered. It says, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab. So just over the Jordan in this land of Moab. Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, and then you have an extended, basically the rest of the book is a quotation, sermon, if you will, of Moses, his final sermon. Again, you see Mosaic authorship affirmed here that this was a book written by Moses. Most of the book is actually his words. It's a little different in that way than the other books of the Pentateuch. Usually you have something like the Lord said to Moses, and then what you have is a record of revelation from the Lord delivered to Israel through Moses as a prophet. But here, look at verse 5 of chapter 1, and you see Moses undertook to explain this law saying. So, it's not that this is any less inspired revelation, but instead of it being the Lord speaking through Moses, this is Moses speaking directly to the people, giving them a final charge, if you will. There are some post-Mosaic editions. For instance, chapter 34, I've mentioned this before, talks about Moses' death. So obviously Moses couldn't have written everything in the book. He wouldn't have been around to write about his death as great as Moses was. So, here we have just a few introductory items, and let's, let's dive in. What is the book of Deuteronomy? Well, as you can see from the sort of title of the slide, there's a sense in which Deuteronomy could be is viewed as a covenant renewal. Okay, so God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. We all remember that. We read about it in Exodus chapter 20 in particular. The Lord descended on the mountain, the people drew near to the mountain, he spoke to them, and then there was a covenant ceremony in the ensuing chapters. Now, that covenant doesn't need to be remade. It's already been made with the nation as a whole. But we have a situation here where the Exodus generation had rebelled against God at Kadesh. You remember Numbers chapter 13 and 14 is the infamous incident where they threatened to stone Moses and Aaron and to go back to Egypt. And God said, excuse me, you will not do that but none of you are going to enter the promised land. Your enti- this entire generation is going to die in the desert. So he condemned them to wander for 40 years as a punishment. And he was going to bring the next generation of Israelites into Israel into the promised land instead of the Exodus generation. So now you have a new generation of Israelites. By the time you get to the end of the book of Numbers, you have a new generation. The the Exodus generation, their children are now the adults. And they had been brought through the wilderness at the end of the 40-year wandering period, and there they are on the verge of the Jordan, about to enter into the land of Canaan. And what an appropriate time to enter into a covenant renewal, to renew their covenant with God. A new generation 
Moses leads them to reaffirm their commitment to keep the covenant that God had made with them as a nation at Mount Sinai. And this is important for two reasons. One, because Moses is about to die. He's not going to enter the promised land. So he's leaving them. So he wants to lead them in a covenant renewal before he dies. But also they're about to enter into the promised land. They're about to begin the conquest. And so it would be important that they do that, having renewed their commitment before God. We also know from, for instance, the book of Joshua, that a lot had been left by the wayside during that wilderness wandering period. In fact, you remember that shocking chapter in the book of Joshua where we found out that God had to command them to be circumcised, to circumcise all the children, because they hadn't circumcised the generation. Now, if there was one thing that was important for Israel to do in terms of their covenant with God, the the very marker of them as God's covenant people was circumcision, and yet they had neglected it. And so, a lot had gone by the wayside during this 40 years, you know, as that unfaithful generation had died off, a new generation raised up. So, it makes sense that on the verge of the promised land, as Moses is about to leave, as they're about to enter, that they would renew their covenant that they had made with God at Mount Sinai. New generation about to enter in. And Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy, obviously these titles come are not the Hebrew titles. They come from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Deuteronomy means second. Deutero is second. Namas is law. So it literally means second or repeated law, second law, Deuteronomy, second law. And so you can see that even the title itself sort of gives you that sense. This is a repetition of the law so that they might reaffirm their commitment to obey it. Now, I've mentioned this before, that with the birth of modern archaeology, which is actually a relatively recent discipline, Late 1800s into the early 1900s is when people really started digging around in a more systematic way and the discipline of modern archaeology was to, was had begun. And when, in that process, we've discovered uh, tablets with covenant documents on them. And what people begin to realize, scholars begin to realize, is that the book of Deuteronomy, for instance, the shape of it, the structure of it, was not uncommon. That it was actually reflecting a, a structure that was used in certain covenant types of covenant relationship uh, covenants that were made between parties in that time period. Uh, we found documents that look very much like the Book of Deuteronomy, right? Reflected covenants that were made between two nations in, uh, that had nothing to do with Israel in that same time period. And so you realize, oh. God was actually taking an established sort of covenant, common covenant structure of that day and using it to, uh, appropriating it uh, to form the shape of his covenant with the nation of Israel. And so often what would happen is that you'd have a a strong, powerful nation, an empire-like nation um, that would enter into a covenant with a, a weaker vassal nation. And so these covenant documents that we found have been called suzerain vassal covenants or suzerain vassal treaties because they reflect a covenant made between a powerful suzerain nation and their vassal nation that is that they're making an agreement with and what we see is that the 
suzerain vassal treaties look very have a common structure at least a few copies of suzerain vassal treaties that we found there's a common structure it's not necessarily that everything is in this exact order but these are the basic elements there's a preamble where the parties are identified um, there's a historical prologue describing the history of the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal and particularly the emphasis here would be upon what the stronger nation the suzerain has done for the weaker nation and then that sets up the terms of the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. And, and, you know, this is, there are obligations placed upon the suzerain, but the emphasis is upon what the vassal nation must do to keep their covenant with the suzerain nation. And then you'd have actual documents, written documents of the treaty. Witnesses were called, usually in the, in the copies that we found, the witnesses that were called would be the gods of that, of those nations. And then, Blessings and curses. Blessings if the vassal keeps the covenant, and punishments if they break it. Now what we find is that Deuteronomy follows that same sort of structure with a little bit different order. There is a preamble, verses 1-5, through where Yahweh, the Lord, the suzerain in Israel, his vassal nation um, that he's entering into a covenant with are identified. There is a historical prologue where Moses recounts the history of the relationship with God, between God and Israel. And what, what we see here, though, is that he doesn't go back all the way to the beginning. In this covenant renewal, which takes the form of a suzerain vassal treaty, he just traces the history of God's dealings with them since the Exodus, right? And then in the stipulations, he, he's reiterating the law that God had given them at Mount Sinai. Now, it's not exactly the same as what you find, for instance, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, but it's it's a it's a summary, contains some of the things, some of the main things. So, for instance, it starts with the Ten Commandments, and then it and then includes a lot of the laws that were given at Sinai. Um, and then there's the blessings and curses laid out in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. Blesses for Israel keeping the law of God, curses for breaking it. There's mention of the documents being written at the end of that in chapter 31, particularly in verses nine. And then 24 and 25 talks about Moses writing everything in the book of the law. And in fact, we'll walk through this in more detail as we go along, but this is just uh, giving you reference points. And then there's witnesses called to testify. In fact, he identifies three witnesses. In fact, let's look at this real quickly. If you turn to Deuteronomy 31, you see in verse 19, the first witness Now therefore write this song, which would be in the next chapter, the song of Moses, and teach it to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And then if you look at verse 26, take this book of the law, the covenant documents that Moses had written, this book of the law, and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there there for a witness against you. So the book of the law is another witness And then in verse 28, Assemble to me all the elders of Israel, the tribes of your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Third witness. So, the point being that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal that that takes the shape of a typical suzerain vassal treaty where God, the Lord, Yahweh is the suzerain, Israel is his vassal, and this is the basic structure of a suzerain vassal treaty shapes the book of Deuteronomy.
Now, it's not the, it's not, there's not a new covenant being made here, of course. It's just a reiteration, a reaffirmation of the original covenant. And in fact, our, an old Reformed scholar named Meredith Klein has actually made the argument that I actually reflected this in my treatment of earlier books, that the entire Pentateuch, in one sense, reflects this same suzerain vassal covenant structure, uh, helping you to see that all of these five books are essentially covenant documents, defining this relationship between Israel and God. Okay, yeah. Of course, in regard like the stipulations, Deuteronomy being the, the second, yeah, and, and he wrote it apparently roughly 40 years later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, earlier when we were doing, when, doing some study, it, it seemed like that another element was that this was almost like he, he took the opportunity here to uh, close up some of the loose, some loopholes from the first one. Mm. Like, mm. the time the law is given, then there's a time where it's challenged or things happen, and then later they come along, okay, you see what you guys do with this, now we need to kind of tighten <laughs> things up a little bit so you don't sleep through the cracks. <laughs> and on marriage in particular, there was a divorce. Right. It seemed to where it closed up, made it, right. changed the rules, updated it a little bit. Yeah, I think a better a better way of describing it, although I get what you're saying, is that just like with any law, you have a law articulated, and then, and then you know Ben could testify to this that I think this is what you would call case law, where it's okay. How does this law apply in the, in this particular case? Scenario. Right. So there's a lot of there's, there's that an expansion upon. In other words, how does the law apply in different scenarios? So you have you have a law like you shall not commit adultery, right? That is going to define, in a general way, the marriage relationship. Obviously, you have other things in the Pentateuch that address marriage. But then, you're right, in Deuteronomy 24, he adds specific instructions about divorce. And so, yeah, there, there is an expansion, but I would say it's really a deeper application of the law, an explanation of how the law applies. Like you said, I mean... Probably because it was being abused, or it was, or there was question that was raised. Like he has a whole thing in Numbers about what do you do if a man charges his wife with adultery? How do you determine, adjudicate whether she's guilty or not? You know, this is the days before DNA tests and whatnot. You know, and so he, there was a whole process by which you, you know, really it was a, super, a way of supernaturally God revealing whether the woman was guilty or not. And really, the Deuteronomy law is on the flip side to prevent men from abusing divorce. There had to be a an actual formalization of of that, so that the woman would not be abused in the process. And that's why Jesus said, "Look, you know, the, the Pharisees were saying, hey, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce.'" And he's like, "Yeah, that was because of your hardness of heart, you know, but it was not so from the beginning, right?" It's not God's intention for marriage, whereas they were just taking liberty of that. So, you're right, um, there, is an, there is sort of an expansion, a, a, a fleshing out of the law, and there are some additions in Deuteronomy that take that kind of shape. So, yeah. Any other questions about just where we're at now? So, let's, let's go into Deuteronomy itself. So, it would be helpful here if you, if you would turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 1 and you know, just follow along in a general way. Look at the, 
Look at the headings in your Bible that are obviously not inspired. They're placed there by the translators, but give you a sense of what is in a passage, and then you can sort of scan through and see, ah, okay, yeah, that's right. So let's let's work through this. Verses 1, 1 through 5 are really going to just tell you when and where Moses delivered these, what you might call speeches, or multiple uh, of them in Deuteronomy. So it tells you, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, etc., etc. In the 14th year, on the first day of the 11th month, etc. So it's, tell, it's giving you the historical context in which is, uh, Moses delivered the, these speeches. In chapter 1 through chapter 3, Moses, what is Moses doing? He's recounting the history of Israel since they left Mount Sinai, here it's called Horeb, until that point, when he, until the, pre, the historical present, right? The present at the time that Moses gave the, this. So you can see that he starts with them at Horeb, he starts with them at Mount Sinai, and then he just, if you follow through, he just recounts the history how he appointed leaders, Israel's refusal to enter the land, God punishing them, the wilderness years, on and on through, right? Their defeat of Sihon and Og as they moved closer to the promised land for a second time um, and take the Transjordan region. Okay, so here we, you see, you can just see the Lord tells them to leave Mount Sinai in verses 6 through 8. The Lord tells them to, Moses to appoint judges in 1, 9 through 18. Israel refuses to enter the promised land. The end of chapter 1, the Lord condemns them to die in the desert outside Canaan. Israel wanders for 40 years in chapter 2. Israel defeats Sihon and Og. Moses asks to enter the, enter the promised land, but God says no at the very end of chapter 3. And that, So that sort of, this is the historical prologue, recounting as they are reaffirming their covenant. Moses reaffirms um, what God has done for them and the history of their relationship since since they left Mount Sinai. Now, when you look at chapter 4, 1 through 43, what you see is a solemn call from Moses to, to Israel to obey the law, especially to worship God alone and not idols. Now, obviously, this is the very heart of the covenant. He, what, what's he doing when he says obey the law? This is not just some abstract, cold thing. This is keep your covenant with Yahweh, right? Be faithful to the Lord. If you were in a marriage covenant, right, and and someone said, don't commit adultery, you wouldn't take that in some cold, abstract way. You're talking about this personal union, covenant relationship. Don't violate your covenant with this person. Don't be unfaithful to this person. Don't betray this person, right? That's what is being said here when Moses says, tells them, urges them to keep the law, especially don't worship idols, right? That's spiritual adultery. It's violation of your relationship with God. And so this is Moses' main thrust here. He's leading the people to reaffirm, to renew this new generation before they enter the land, to reaffirm, renew their covenant commitment to God. Keep the law, Israel. Especially do not worship idols. And and then, of course, you have, at the end of verse 4, the reason why. Because the Lord alone is your God. Now, when you move from the end of chapter 44, verse 44, if you look there, for instance, specifically, you see it says, This is the law. 
that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So, you have, beginning in verse 44 of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 26, verse 19, you have a restatement of the law that God had given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Now again, there's expansions, there are some omissions, it's not comprehensive, and it's mixed with all kinds of other admonitions that Moses gives them along the way. But these, the bulk of the book, chapters 4, 44, all the way through chapter 26, 19, is a restatement of the law. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Okay, So he's restating the terms of the covenant that Israel's made with God. So let's just walk through this. There's an introduction in verses 44 through 49. Moses, again, like I just read, he's saying, this is, I'm about to tell you the law. And then, just like in the book of Exodus, when the law is first given, what does it start with? Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments are the law in a nutshell. In fact, they were written on tablets of stone and put inside the Ark of the Covenant because they were really a summary, a boiling down of the terms of Israel's covenant with God. The rest of the law, which was written in the book of the law, was an expansion upon that, a fleshing out of the ten words, an explanation of how these words applied in various areas of Israel's life, right? So think of all the sexual, the commands against sexual morality in Leviticus 18 and 20, right? Well, that's just an expansion of what commandment? You shall not commit adultery, right? And, of course, even the Ten Commandments could be summarized in really two commandments. Which ones were those? Love of God, love of neighbor. Jesus even said, these are the two great commandments. You keep these, you keep everything else, right? So you have the two great commandments, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law, which really expands upon and, and builds out, fleshes out. the the terms of the covenant. So, just like that, Moses starts in chapter 5 with the Ten Commandments, uh, and then there's a solemn command to love the Lord with all their heart, right? So this is what really, in some ways, is the sort of heartbeat of the entire Old Testament law, what's often called the Shema, verse 4 of chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, right? So he articulates the Ten Commandments and then he, he says, he boils it down to the main, the heartbeat principle of the law is, is covenant loyalty, steadfast love, loving the Lord with all your heart. If you do that, you will keep all the commandments, right? <laughs> because you love the Lord, right? That will be what is expressed. So chapter 6 is that heartbeat. Then there's, then there's chapter 7 is an explanation of how the Lord had chosen Israel, how he had set his love upon Israel, and how he had done so even though there was nothing about Israel that would commend them to God, right? He, he says, look, you're nothing... It's not like you were some special nation. I looked out over the nations and I picked out the best one for myself. He says, no, there was nothing about you that was particularly attractive 
He says, I just chose you because I chose you, right? Uh, I set my love upon you. And that's why, that's why you're my covenant people, not because you're better than the other nations. And then... And so that's emphasizing his sovereign election, his gracious election, so that they would not, so that they, this is in concert with a command to, when you go into the nation of Israel, I've called you to be my special people, therefore don't worship their gods, don't fall in with their ways, make sure that you drive the Canaanites completely out of the land, otherwise they'll turn you against me. And then, of course, you have in chapter 8, and another an explanation, a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to them in the desert, and another ex- exhortation to keep His commands, and then a warning to them not to be unbelieving, not to be rebellious like their fathers. He reminds them of the golden calf incident. And then you have this very striking, these very striking chapters in chapters 9 and 10, where he talks about their need for circumcision of heart. You know, they've been such, their fathers were such a, stiff neck and rebellious people. And so he tells them, circumcise your hearts, you know, cut away the unrighteousness from your heart so that you will not be like your fathers, so that you'll keep the, the command. So you could see that this, this opening section here is really all a summary of the law and then an exhortation to keep the law when they enter the land, to not to remember that they are God's special people, to not go the way of the nations in the land or their forefathers, but to keep their heart true to the Lord, to love Him with all their heart. Now, you get to chapter 11, and you have this sort of sober warning against being unfaithful. And He reminds them of what He has done to people that were unfaithful in the past. You know, in verse 6, or verses 5 and 6, he says, Remember what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, sons of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. You see, he's, he's warning them. Don't betray the Lord. Don't go back on your covenant commitments. You know what happens to those that do that, right? You can imagine, I mean, this is Moses pouring out his heart to the people, urging them to renew their covenant with God, to remain faithful to the Lord. Okay, so that takes us through chapter 11. Now, that first, those first, that first section, chapter 4, 44 through chapter 11, there's not a whole lot of specific laws, right? It's like the Ten Commandments, the Shema, you know, love the Lord your God, keep the Ten Commandments, lays that out, and then there's a lot of exhortation and warning about keeping the law. But now when you get into chapters 12 through 26, what you see is now he's going to reiterate a lot of the very specific laws that had been given. This is where you have a repetition of the the specific laws that were given at Mount Sinai. Things that you will remember, for instance, from the book of Exodus especially. You have laws about the tabernacle and the temple and what they were to do, how they were going to arrange that and to carry that out in chapter 12 once they got into the land of Canaan. That's chapter 12. You have laws against idolatry and how to deal with idolatry when it arises in their midst. Um, you have laws about ritual purity and tithing in chapter 14. So you could just you know, flip through and see this is what it's covering. Laws about the, the sabbatical year, every seventh year, how they were to give the land rest. Laws about feasts. 
It goes through all the different feasts again, reiterates the regulations about that. Laws about false worship. Laws about legal decisions. How to exercise judgment without partiality. Uh, laws about the kings. You know when they were to, when they did have a king. Eventually, how he was to how he was to act. In chapter eighteen, you have laws about providing for the priests. Laws prohibiting the practice of divination, and then laws about determining true and false prophets. And of course, Deuteronomy 18 is where they have that famous prediction that God would raise up a prophet for them like Moses, right? And we'll come back to that a little bit later. Laws about cities of refuge, laws about war, how to carry out warfare in a way that was proper. Various miscellaneous laws from marriage to sex to murder, etc. Chapters 21 through 25, you can sort of skim through there. Laws about tithes and offering, chapter 26. Okay, so you can see a bunch of specific laws in this section. So you had the sort of center, the Ten Commandments, the Great Commandment, exhortation to keep these laws, don't be unfaithful, you know, warnings about being unfaithful, and then a reiteration of a of sort of a sampling of the old, all the specific commands of the Old Testament reiterated so that they would know as they're going into the promised land, this is what you must do. And then when you get to chapters 27 and 28, what do you have? You have those infamous blessings and curses, right? And once again, as you read through these, in in chapter 27, Israel is commanded to renew their covenant. So this is where you actually see the command to renew the covenant, right? Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. On that day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. You shall write on them all the words of the law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised him. When you've crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings. And then he says, and you shall write on them, on the stones, all the words of this law very plainly. Now, that's actually commanding them to renew their covenant, to have a covenant renewal ceremony again, once they cross over into the land of Canaan. And I actually showed you, we covered how they did that in Joshua, in the book of Joshua. In fact, what you see is that really the history of Israel has repeated covenant renewals. (laughs) Repeated instances where they go back and they renew their commitments to God. They don't redo the covenant, but they renew the covenant. Now, then you get to chapter 28 and you have, you have the, the blessings for obedience. It's 14 verses. And then you have the curses for disobedience, which is chap- verses 15 through 68. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, it's longer. Why do you think that is? Yeah, like if you tell your your child, you know, if you obey, this is the good thing that's going to happen. But if you disobey, these are all the bad things that are going to happen. It's because you kind of expect one outcome over the other. I think the reason why this is the way it is is because there's an expectation on Moses' part of what's going to happen. 
he knows the hearts of the people. And uh, so then you have a final charge by Moses, chapter 29 and 30. Um, the covenant is renewed in chapter, in chapter 29. Moses summons all Israel, right? He, he reiterates the law to them, and they renew the covenant with God, having you know, heard all the stipulations. And then there's this sort of famous charge in chapter 30 where he kind of lays before them. You know, I'm laying before you the way of life, the way of death. <laughs> Choose this day. What are you going to do, right? So there's just this forceful emphasis on Moses' part as he's about to leave them and they're about to enter the land. Keep your covenant with God. Choose the way of life. Don't choose the way of death. Okay. And then finally, you have chapters 31 through 34 really devoted to the transition from Moses to Joshua as you move from Moses is going to pass off the scene. He's going to die and Joshua is going to come in. So the law book is finished in chapter 31 and Joseph or Joshua is commissioned in chapter 31. Moses gives his song to Israel, reminding Israel of God's faithfulness in chapter 32. And then Moses' final blessing to Israel in chapter 33. And then Moses dies and is replaced by Joshua in chapter 34. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the book. Any, any questions in terms of the outline of the book? We saw the sort of covenant structure that it has, sort of walk through each of the sections. Any, any questions? Okay. Well... Let's get to what does Deuteronomy teach? Well, on the one hand, I think it, it reiterates for us a pattern that is really, I think, the, it's the, it reiterates the, the structure of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant, as you look at the bigger picture of the Bible, the Old Covenant, that is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, is really establishes an ideal pattern for God's relationship with his elect, with his people. And I'm not saying that the covenant is not without, the old covenant is not the ideal covenant in, the, in every way. What I'm saying is it lays out a pattern. You see God graciously elects a people. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7. He sovereignly saves them. As we see reiterated, when God talks about how, and when Moses talks about in the historical prologue, all that God has done for Israel. He enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And by the way, what is the first, the very first covenant relationship that you see in the Bible? Anyone want to? Right, even, I think there's reason to believe that the relationship that God entered into with Adam was covenantal in structure. Adam and Eve had a covenant of marriage. And you go on down the line, Noah and Abraham. So God, over and over in the Bible, this emphasis is upon covenant relationship between God and people. You have a, a people that he chooses, he sovereignly saves, he enters into a covenant relationship with. He places a holy calling upon them, right? which is defined, that what does it mean to live a holy life before God? Well, first of all, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And then the Ten Commandments sort of flesh out further what that, the basics of what that looks like to be a holy people before God. And then you have fellowship with God in a good land, right? All of this is moving toward God. He'd pitched his tent with Israel in the desert as they traveled along, but the goal was that he would bring them into a good land where he would set up a permanent dwelling with them and they would have communion together in the land of Canaan, right? And what does that echo back to, you think? God living in fellowship with man in a good land. Right, there's echoes of what was lost in Eden, something of it is being restored here. You know, Israel, Palestine is a, is a land, or Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey, and God is there, and He dwells with His people. Kind of like Eden. Except we know, obviously, it wasn't the final expression of that. But you see what I'm saying? It's establishing a pattern, an ideal, right? That is there. It's God chooses a people, sovereignly saves them, enters into a covenant with them, gives them a holy calling. I am holy. You are to be holy, right? Which, by the way, also goes back to the Garden of Eden because Adam was made in God's image. What does it mean to be in the image of God? You're reflecting God in your life, right? You're His image. You're supposed to reflect something of His character. When people see man, they should see something. A reflection of God's glory, right? So that when man was going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he was to fill it with the image of God. Well, that was lost or tarnished, distorted through the fall, but Israel was to be a new humanity, as it were, that would be holy as God is holy and reflect His his character in their lives, in this good land. So my point is that the Old Covenant is establishing a structure. Deuteronomy is reflecting that covenant, that ideal pattern of God saving a people, choosing a people, saving a people, entering into covenant with them, giving them a holy calling, and fellowshipping with them in a good land. But Deuteronomy also highlights the deficiencies of the Old Covenant, right? Because the whole thing is like, Don't break this covenant. Don't violate the covenant. Don't break the law. Don't worship idols. But Moses knew (laughs) that's going to happen. The the whole point of this ethos of Deuteronomy that as Moses departs, he wants them to renew their commitment. But he knows this covenant is breakable, right? And when they break it, what's going to happen? Their curses are going to come upon them, right? And so you see that the very fact that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal indicates that the covenant had to be reiterated. It had to be renewed again and again because Israel kept violating it. The first generation, what had happened? Had they kept the covenant? No. That's why it was having to be renewed with the next generation. So it pointed to the violability of the old covenant, the breakability, the need for constantly going back and renewing your your commitment. And it lacked provision, particularly, look at Deuteronomy Chapter 10, verse 16. He says to Israel, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, when when Moses says that, what is he acknowledging that they need? What is he acknowledging that they need? What is the imagery of circumcision of heart? They need a new, they need a, a heart for God. But the fact that he tells them to circumcise their own heart it's sort of built in to the equation is a, is a, a sense of futility. They can't do that. <laughs> he knows they need to change their hearts, but they can't do it. 
So within the old covenant structure, there is this, you know, even in Deuteronomy, you see the lack. What is lacking is there's not the provision to keep the covenant built into it. And also, the covenant curses are inevitable because of this. Because Israel can't change their own hearts, because they are prone to stubbornness and unbelief, Moses actually knows they're going to violate it. So, you know, we saw that reflected in the fact that he spent so much time on the covenant curses rather than the covenant blessings. But, but look at chapter 30, verse 1. He, he just been, got done talking about the covenant curses and warning them. Verse 1, he says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, now, when he says, all the nations to which the Lord your God has driven you, what's he talking about? The exile. Moses already foresees what's going to happen. All the covenant curses are going to come on you, and what's the last of the covenant curses? Finally, God would kick them out of the land and throw them into exile. And Moses says, when that happens to you, <laughs> remember and repent. And as you read through the chapter, you see that he actually anticipates a day when something better would be established. As you read through, he talks about verse 9, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of the cattle, and the Lord will again take delight in you and prosper. So he's he's anticipating a future redemption beyond the ashes of the exile, right? But also Moses' own death. Now Moses was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. You know, Isaiah was great, but no one's greater than Moses. There's no greater body of revelation given than Moses. Moses is the paradigmatic prophet. And all the other prophets flow out of Moses, right? But Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. That too tells you something. They need a better prophet, right? A better mediator, right? Between God and His covenant people. And in fact, this is what Moses himself anticipated, right? Back in chapter 18, Verses 15 through 19, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at the day of Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, You are right in what they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Right? And then finally, we see the need for a better covenant itself. And this is I actually jumped the gun on this, but I alluded to this. Deuteronomy thirty one through ten really foretells a time. He says, when all this has come upon you, when you are in exile, right? Then return to the Lord and the Lord will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you again from all the people. So he's anticipating a time when something better would come. When this covenant had sputtered out and proven not sufficient, uh, God is going to restore you out of exile. And, and you're going to experience the blessings. But he doesn't explain how at this point, but he anticipates something better. Now, this is our last slide, so hopefully I can get through it here. First, I want you to see that when you get to the New Testament, okay, so Deuteronomy and the New Testament, 
when you get to the New Testament, you see explicitly that Jesus is identified as the greater prophet that Moses foresaw. So turn to Acts 3, 19 through 23, and you see it. Peter is speaking, and he says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Whom you, for whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, all right, now he's quoting Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then he says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. So, Peter quotes from Deuteronomy 18, and who is the prophet that has come, that Moses has spoken of? Jesus, the Christ. And the days of Jesus are the days that all the prophets were anticipating, the days of restoration. And in fact, I want to point out that Moses went up on the mountain and delivered the law, received the law from God to the people. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew chapter 5, after Jesus, you have this period of uh, his birth, and then the beginning of his baptism, the beginning of his ministry, and then what's the first thing he does? He goes up on a mountain, he delivers the law to the people. In fact, he says, you have heard it said, I say to you, right? Now we have a new prophet giving new law to his new covenant people. And so there's echoes of Moses all through that section, actually, that Jesus is being presented as a greater Moses, the great prophet that that's like Moses, but better. And then... Jesus is also presented as the true Israelite who fulfilled the Old Covenant on behalf of his people. And I want to show you this. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, many scholars, I mean pretty much any exegetical commentary you pick up on Matthew is going to note this, that you have an intentional repetition of the history of Israel in the life of Jesus. So you have Jesus goes down to Egypt in uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and following. And then there's a quote. It says, And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Except when you go back to Hosea 11.1 1, and you look at that, it's speaking of Israel being brought out of Egypt at the Exodus. And Jesus, Matthew is somehow saying that that is being repeated in a greater way in Jesus he goes down into Egypt so that he might come out of Egypt like Israel came out of Egypt. And then, what happened when Israel came out of Egypt in the days of Moses? Remember, Pharaoh tried to kill all of the firstborn, all the male children, to get rid of, to get rid of the Israelites? And what happens? You have a repetition of that with Jesus. Herod tries to get rid of Jesus by killing all the firstborn children. So there's, again, an intentional echo of Israel's history in the life of Jesus. And then, if you skip forward a little bit, you have chapter 4. Where did Israel go when they left, after the Exodus? Where did they go? Out into the wilderness. What does Jesus do? After fasting 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, how many years was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. So there's, you see, again, there's a, a pattern. Israel's history is being repeated here in Jesus. It's as if Matthew's saying, see, Jesus is the true Israel, the one in whom 
everything that Israel failed to do would be fulfilled in him, right? In fact, you have this great... Israel went out into the desert and they were tempted. How'd they do? Bad. (laughs) Jesus goes out into the desert. He's tempted by Satan himself. Echoes of the Garden of Eden. But and echoes of Israel's history, but how does he do? Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, he resists the devil. In fact, he quotes the word of God three times. In what book of the Bible does he quote from? Deuteronomy, three different times, right? So what's the point? He is keeping the covenant. He's fulfilling what Israel failed to fulfill, right? So you have this picture of Jesus coming as the true Israelite and fulfilling the law on behalf of Israel. And in fact, not only does he positively obey where Israel failed, but even though he was the one obedient Israelite, he also took the curses, right? The Reformed tradition has talked about this in terms of the active obedience of Christ, keeping the law of God perfectly, and the passive obedience of Christ, bearing the penalty of the law in their place. So look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. What does it say? Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, by the way, what book is he citing? Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. He's saying, okay, remember what the law said. If you break the covenant, you will be cursed. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you want to try living by the law, you've got to keep it. But no one does, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, what book? Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three: Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, the New Testament emphasizes that Jesus came as a true Israelite to fulfill, to succeed where Israel failed in keeping the law and then bearing the curses of the law in the place of his people so that the blessing of God might finally come because the blessing was there for those who obey, right? But Israel never obeyed. We can't obey. We have that stubborn, wicked heart. So Jesus came to obey and to bear the curses for us so that His people, because of Him, might finally receive the blessing that God promised to Abraham. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. And then Jesus, having fulfilled the old covenant, establishes a new covenant, which follows that pattern I laid out of the old covenant. There's there's a lot of similarities. Election, sovereign redemption, sovereign salvation, a holy calling, living with God, a communion with God in a good land, all those things. It's the same pattern, but it's better because it's all guaranteed. It's going to be fulfilled. So there's gracious election, sovereign salvation, holy calling, fellowship with God in a good land. But it's a better covenant because, as the writer Hebrews says, it's based on better promises, right? So actually turn to Hebrews. Keep your finger in Galatians 3, if you will, but turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better 
senses it has enacted on better promises. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. So Christ established a new covenant that was better than the old because it's based on better promises. And how is it better? What are these better promises? Well, for one thing, the new covenant isn't breakable. Why? Because the conditions are fulfilled, not by us. If it was dependent on us, it would be broken. But God, Christ comes, the true Israelite, the second Adam, and through his obedience and through his curse-bearing death, he fulfills the terms on our behalf as our representative covenant head so that we are righteous in him. And there's no, there's no worry that it's going to be broken because Christ is perfect. And what was the lack, what was the thing that wasn't provided in the Old Testament that Moses knew they needed? Circumcise your hearts, right? Well, the New Testament provides that circumcision of heart. We call it regeneration or being born again of the Spirit. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So you see, Paul is already talking about a circumcision of the heart that's provided by the Spirit. Well, that's the blessing of regeneration in the the New Covenant. Remember, Jeremiah talked about it. I'll write my law, not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. Paul talks about it. He describes it as the circumcision of Christ. That's what I think is being referred to here. In Him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It wasn't that bodily removal of the foreskin but the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, right? It's that, it's the, the death to your old sin nature and the new life you have. This is the circumcision that Christ provides, a circumcision made without hands, so that Paul could say in Philippians 3, we are the true circumcision. Those who have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ by the Spirit, that is, we've been regenerated. And then, The curse was born by Jesus, like we already saw in Galatians 3, so that we're no longer under a curse, and the the blessings are guaranteed. If you go back to Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the blessing is secured not through our covenant faithfulness, but through Christ's. And that's, oh, that makes the new covenant so much better, right? I mean, it can't get better than that. And then finally, this is a covenant that is eternal. Okay, nothing's going to come along. The old covenant had to be replaced. Nothing's going to come along and replace the new covenant. Nothing. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ died to redeem us from the curses of the old covenant and to mediate a new covenant by which we receive an eternal inheritance. There's no, this is not, there's going to be no more need for anything to replace the new covenant. In fact, at the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 20, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will.
So there's a sense in which you have covenant, 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 covenant. Nothing needs to replace the new covenant. All right, so hopefully this gives you a sense of, first of all, what Deuteronomy is about in its original context, but also the role it plays in establishing this ideal pattern that both foreshadowed what was to come and within its deficiencies, right? (laughs) That is the things that it lacked, not that it was in any way evil or bad, but in the things that it lacked, it pointed forward to the covenant, the better covenant that was to come in Christ. All right, so I want to leave you with this. Read Joshua. (laughs) Now, I realize that it's totally, probably unrealistic for me to suggest that you read the entire Old Testament, or at least Genesis through Song of Solomon in 15 weeks. But if you, if you did, that would be awesome. You'd be prepared each week for our study because you had read that book beforehand, and you would have sort of, it would be fresh on your mind. So it's just a suggestion, but I know it's a big ask. All right, so let's close in prayer, and then feel free to come talk to me if you have questions. Father, thank you for our time in Deuteronomy this morning. Lord, to think that you have chosen us, as Paul said, before the foundation of the world, sovereignly saved us through a new exodus, through Christ, our Passover lamb, slaughtered for us. To think that you have entered into a covenant relationship with us so that comparable to the intimacy of a marriage covenant so that we are called the bride of Christ, to think that you have put a holy calling upon us to be holy as you are holy, but then committed to sanctifying us by the Spirit, that you've regenerated our hearts and that the Spirit is going to make us holy, even as Paul said to the Thessalonians that God will sanctify us completely. Father, to think that we will be conformed entirely to the image of Christ, and then to think that We too are headed to a heavenly country where we will enjoy perfect fellowship and communion with you. Something like the nation of Israel with the temple there, but even better that the whole land will in a sense be a temple because your presence will dwell with us there in fullness. To think of all these things foreshadowed through the types of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. Lord, help us to by studying Deuteronomy to appreciate with greater clarity and depth and, and, uh, and feeling what you have done for us. In it. And we pray that you would also just give us through this study a greater understanding of the scriptures as a whole um, and how they relate to Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.